Hey, grab your Bibles. The passage is John chapter 4. We're back in the Gospel of John now, uh, picking up where we left off at the end of November before we dove into our Advent series. So John 4. Uh, if you're on a device, you can go to the ESV. And if it's your first time here, great to have you. My name is Ronnie, one of the pastors here. I'm so glad that you came, joined us this morning. Um, so we started the Gospel of John in September. Um, and really, uh, what we've seen up to this point um, is that Jesus has come on the scene. Um, he is the Word made flesh. He has come, He has infiltrated this world as God in the flesh. Um, and he, what he does, one of the unique things that he does, as we've seen all these different stories leading up to where we are today, is he, he just challenges the norms. And we don't often think of Jesus in that particular light as somebody that came in and starts making everybody super uncomfortable. But when we think back at some of the, some of the passages that we've looked at, whether it's with him healing the sick or engaging with his disciples or engaging with uh, a, you know, a, a county officials or religious leaders. Everywhere Jesus goes, he challenges the norms. And everybody is amazed by the heart and the spirit of Jesus and the way in which he does, it, does those things. Everywhere Jesus goes, people are either, they're offended, they're curious, uh, they're cautious, or they're just filled with joy. And sometimes it, it, we see all of those things happening at once, which is what we're going to see here as we read this story, really famous passage about this woman called the, the woman at the well. And the title this morning is called The Countercultural Jesus. Let me tell you why I named it that. Um, when we think of countercultural, right, especially as the church, and maybe you don't think of it like this because you don't have ex enough experience in the church, but as the church, countercultural means that we are, we're very visibly standing up. And we're pushing against societal norms that are generally very against God. And there's something that pushes against what we feel like God has, has given us um, as a society to better flourish and to have increased morality and in, in the things that God has given to us, the good things that God has given to us as a way to function as a people that will only lead to better communities. Uh, better neighborhoods. And so sometimes when we say countercultural, what we do as the church is we'll stand up and we'll say anything that's not falling into that or within those things that we feel are good things that God has established, we just want, we want to push against that, right? We want to stand up. We want to be visibly, um, we, want to, we want to be uh, visibly sometimes very direct and very verbal about what we know God has established, and to say, hey, that is not what God has. And as a society or a community or a town or a city or a nation, we want our voice to be known. We want to be counterculture. We want to push. And you know, there's a place to do that, right? As believers, we need to stand up for what we know and believe to be good and true based on what we learn from scriptures that tell us what is good and true. What we're going to see today is something a little bit different in terms of how we might want to define countercultural. And actually what we see Jesus doing more often than what I just described, and it really is a countercultural heart posture. What Jesus does is Jesus gets in there with people and he challenges the cultural norms of their heart. All right? Because we all have a culture 
that has been established inside of us based on all kinds of things based on how we've been raised, based on the things that we have adopted, that we feel or we think or we experience to be true, right? They're they're the things that propel us and move us and change and affect our behavior, but not everybody sees those things because they're here. They're heart or, it's a heart-oriented culture. What Jesus does is he comes in there and he counters the culture of our heart based on how it's been shaped by everything that goes on around us, things that have been done to us even. And that's really what we see here as we dive into this passage. And that's what I want you to start thinking about even right now, as you think of this word countercultural, because what Jesus really is doing is he's doing a countercultural work in your heart, right? That causes us to step back and go, what's going on? What's going on inside of here? It's easy to step back and go, it's out there. What's harder is to put up that spiritual mirror in front of us and go, you know, actually, the reason for everything that goes on out there is because of what goes on in the hearts of people in, in here. So we want, to get down to, we want to get down to the things that Jesus is getting down to. And this is what he does with this woman uh, in this particular story in John chapter 4. So I'm just going to read it. It's a long passage. We're going to read 42 verses right now so you can buckle up. And this is what it is. Verse one, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and he departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God... And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become to him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, well, go call your husband and come here. And Jesus, uh, the woman answered him and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet and our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in, Jerus- uh, you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, verse 21, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. 
we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. 25, and the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar, went away into the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. And meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Don't you say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, you have entered into their labor. Verse 39, many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him and he stayed there for two days and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. And we're gonna stop right there. That's the word of the Lord for us this morning. We don't like our way of life or our way of thinking challenged. That's just something natural to us. We don't like that, we push against that. We've all had the experience of doing something one way until we realized there was a better way to do that, right? And in those moments, we either embrace that new way or we dig our heels in. Say, don't tell me how to do this. I've been doing it this way my whole life. It's fine, right? Your salvation from God is the moment when God challenged your way of thinking he exposed your idols, he surfaced your incompleteness, and he drew near to you. And in that moment, your heart broke for Jesus and all that he did to accomplish a work of salvation for you. You didn't come to Christ because you were doing just fine, right? What Jesus does is enter the culture of your heart, the culture of your life, and he flips the narrative which is what we just read about. He flips the narrative. He reverses the trend that sin has had on you. This is the good news. This is the gospel that we speak so often about here. This is the gospel that I preach on Sundays. M. Night Shyamalan is a, a film director, Hollywood movie maker, that gets a lot of, lot of criticism, mainly because his movies are not very good. Um, <laughs> But he's unique in the kind of movies that he's made. Probably everybody here has, has, uh, has seen some of his movies, but he has this tendency in all of his movies to flip the narrative. That's what he's known for. If you've seen 
Movies like The Sixth Sense or Unbreakable or The Village or Signs, probably his four good movies, right? Um, We can debate that later, right? That's not what we're here to do. Then you know that at some point, at the end of the movie, um, you're waiting for the big reveal from M. Night Shyamalan, right? The story wasn't what you thought it was. There was something deeper going on and he reveals that at the end. And you know, at that point, your mind is supposed to be blown and you're supposed to step back and go, I should have seen it all the time. And now when I go watch it the second time, I see all the places that I should have been able to see that what everybody was doing and talking about wasn't quite what it seemed. He, he flips the narrative. What's interesting is that the Lord does that in your life. The Lord flips the narrative of your life. He does that and he does it a lot. He does it all the time. In fact, I, I always think about in, uh, for me and Melissa in our own lives, there, were, there was just something deeper going on when we relocated to Ohio. It'll be 13 years this June. And um, we thought we were heading in one direction. We thought we were moving here for a particular reason, but the Lord flipped the narrative after just a couple of years being here. And it led us to, to planting substance with, uh, with, with a team, you know. Um, God had something planned. He pursued us with his plan, even though we didn't realize it in the beginning. He put us in a place eventually to execute his plan. And we look back and we are amazed because it wasn't the story we had written. It was counter to the story that we had written. We had things going on in our hearts at the time that God was using that flipping of the narrative to change inside of us, right? And in that way, he is and is still doing a counter-cultural work in our lives. So by changing our stories, he changes the relationship that we have with him. He changes the relationship we have with our families and our neighbors and our world. And so what we just read here in these 42 verses is that Jesus shows us that the gospel is a message that breaks things down. It breaks down our story. It breaks down the idols and the the prejudices and the values that form the culture in our heart that gives way to the stories that have created it to be what it is, right? Right? And so what we see here, as we just read this, is we see five characteristics emerge as Jesus interacts with the woman at the well. And by the way, they are characteristics that everyone who has been saved has experienced in their relationship with Jesus. And one of the unique aspects of these characteristics is that, again, they're countercultural by nature. They go against the trends of our culture and they go against the trends of our heart. The first one is this, as we look through verses one through eight, is that Jesus draws near to the unlovely. Jesus draws near to the unlovely. So we see here, as we just read, he makes his way to Galilee. He takes a route that has him passing through the city of Samaria. Now, Samaria has a horrible history uh, with the Israelites. Bad history with Israel, a history that had lasted for hundreds of years. And here's what happened to give you a little snapshot of the history. In 721 BC, the Assyrians, this other nation, they had swept through northern Israel and they brought Israelite captives with them back to Assyria. And what happened in that time is the Israelites intermarried with the Assyrians. At the same time, in southern Israel, None of that had happened. There was no intermarriage that had taken place. So this deep and this intolerable hatred 
had grown between the north and the south because southern Jews believed they were of pure Jewish blood. And they looked at the northern Israelites as if they, they weren't, right? Um, this was the cultural norm at that time. If you're a southern Jewish person, you hate those northern Jewish people called Samaritans. But Jesus does something different. He passes through Samaria and he does it for two reasons. One is to, as we just read the beginning of the passage, to distance himself from the Pharisees who, who it seems were trying to create some division between him and John the Baptist, John the Baptist's disciples. So he was, he was trying to distance himself from that because some of that stuff was brewing. Secondly, he passes through Samaria in order to meet a Samaritan woman who he will begin a gospel work through in the city. Jesus decides to draw near. Jesus decides to break down racial barriers. Jesus decides to model the great commission to his disciples, which up to that point were away buying food in the city and were gonna come back and see something that was massively uncomfortable. So to set up this, this sort of divine encounter with this woman, he sends his disciples, like I said, sends them away into the city to buy food and waits at a place called Jacob's Well. He's very fatigued, very thirsty from his journey. We get, to see the, we get to see the humanity of Jesus here. He's somebody who was working hard, right? And he comes to the well. He needs a drink of water. He's tired. He sits down. Um, and while no self-respecting Jewish man Whatever passed through Samaria, Jesus doubles down. He takes it a step further because Jewish rabbis of who Jesus was considered were prohibited to have conversations or even greet women in public. I don't know, right? This was the norm. This was the cultural norm for rabbis of that time. Again, what does Jesus do? Jesus draws near. Jesus breaks down social barriers and norms of his time. He draws near to those that everybody else keeps what I would say is an unjustified distance from. All of you know what this feels like, right? All of you can recall times where you've avoided different people for all kinds of different reasons, right? It happens in the grocery store, right? You're coming down the aisle and there comes that person around the aisle and you go, I don't think I need anything on this aisle now, right? And you just, you go the other way, right? For all kinds of reasons. We all know what it's like to, to, to avoid other people. People maybe that have sinned against you. People maybe that you have sinned against. People whose personalities that you struggle with. People whose skin color you struggle with. People whose native language you struggle with. People whose immigration status you struggle with. This gets uncomfortable real fast, doesn't it? Right? But Jesus does something different. He opens his heart wide to the people that his people considered unlovely and unacceptable and unapproachable. Jesus does this very simple thing in this moment. He loves his neighbor. And then he defines for us who our neighbor is by his actions with this woman by the well. What's so sobering for us is that the message of the gospel reminds us that we are those people, right? 
We are those people who Jesus draws near to in the unloveliness of our sin, which is what makes this such a stark realization. If we step back and see what Jesus did and have even just a, just a basic understanding of the, of the times that he was living in and how, how it was something that would have been very criticized and we'll see that it, that it was in some ways. And we see how deeply Jesus cared for those who were considered unworthy of it. And then we put ourselves in that category. We put ourselves in that place. And we're just humbled by that. And it breaks down all kinds of culture that has been built up in our heart due to all kinds of wicked things, right? The gospel comes to unite the gospel comes to break down racial and social barriers, to bring together people who would normally be far apart. Jesus anticipates the Apostle Paul's words to the Galatians when Paul said, For as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs According to the promise, Jesus is living this out right now with this woman who by his standards, the standards of the culture that he lived in, should have stayed a million miles away from. Someone considered unlovely, someone considered off limits, Jesus draws near to her. Secondly, we see that Jesus revolutionizes ways of thinking. He revolutionizes ways of thinking. When we look at verses 9 through 15, we see this woman who's not given a name for reasons we don't know, but this woman is shocked at Jesus' request for a drink of water. Her question to him is pretty bold, but it's completely legitimate, right? Why do you, she, she understood the, 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 the customs of, of the culture of that day. She said, why do you, a Jewish man, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink of water. And what should be curious to us is the response that Jesus gives the woman. And you have to love how he treats this woman in this moment. He doesn't answer her by providing a, you know, a history lesson on all the hatred and prejudices that existed between the Jews and Samaritans, right? He doesn't, he doesn't break down those technicalities. Those things matter a lot, by the way, but he begins by telling this woman about who he is and gets to the remedy for the brokenness that undergirds all cultural, political, and relational issues, which is an absence of Jesus Christ. He gets to the heart of what this woman actually needs. And he says, if, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for a better drink is what Jesus is saying. For, uh, for the better water, the living water that quenches the thirst of the soul. There's something bigger going on here. There's something deeper underneath the surface that Jesus is getting to. And the woman answers with an argument, really, that, that lasers in on two areas, which is Jesus' capability and Jesus' identity. She's like, you obviously don't have a well at your disposal, or you wouldn't be asking me for a drink of water. So she's, she's trying to figure out what Jesus is, is, is kind of driving at here because Jesus is the one that just asked her for a drink of water. But secondly, she's saying, look, our, our forefathers were fine from drinking from this well. And now you're saying that you have something better 
This woman is saying, who are you exactly? Like, who are you to come and tell me that you have something that I can't see that's better than what I'm coming here to draw from the well that I need to live? Jesus revolutionizes her way of thinking, just like he does our way of thinking. It's like she's saying, wait, you're telling me you really have what I need more than this? You're saying you're telling me you have what I need more than everything else in the world? It seems far-fetched. It seems audacious. Who is this man? Again, take it from the standpoint of this woman. Who is this man moving in so close, but yet not taking advantage of me like the other men in my life likely have? And her response is so interesting because she's not quite getting it. She still doesn't know who she's talking to yet. She thinks maybe, she thinks maybe she's you know, gonna get a bottle of everlasting Avion, right? Or something like that. Which would mean that she wouldn't have to go back and forth from the well anymore. What she's not quite seeing yet is the heavier burden that Jesus is offering to lift from her. And that's what Jesus does. He constantly is revolutionizing our thinking this way. That's why we gather together. That's why I open the word on Sundays. That's why we preach because we want Jesus to continue to do that, to change our way of thinking, to change the culture of our heart, to change the societal norms that that have entered our heart that are harmful to our heart and harmful to our neighbors around us, right? Jesus constantly revolutionizes those things. We look around and we repeatedly are leaning into things that are transient in nature and Jesus is always drawing us back to an eternal way of seeing the world and seeing our lives. Jesus is always offering himself as the answer to our greatest need, which is relief from the burdens that bear down on our heart and souls. In John 7, Jesus was at a feast and he stood up and he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This woman may have been familiar with some of those Old Testament passages that Jesus is drawing from as he compares life with God to rivers of living water that flow out of our souls to replenish us and renew us and nourish us. He revolutionizes our way of thinking by reminding us that only he can bring renewal to our hearts by offering us the better water, the more satisfying water to quench our spiritual thirst. And he does that by our third point, which is surfacing hidden things that are trying to convince us otherwise. And that's what we see is that Jesus here in verse 16 through 26, he surfaces hidden things, those things that are painful to visit or revisit, but where we can't experience the living water of Jesus until we do. So we had this uh, upstairs in our house. We have this old farmhousey thing that was built in a farmhousey thing. You guys can take that with you. Um, it's a house, um, but we had this we had this tub upstairs, and um, we noticed that um, as we looked uh, at our ceiling in the living room. Uh, something was leaking. And so after, I don't know, just six or seven years of seeing this tub leak, 
we decided that it was probably time to uh, replace the tub. Um, so we brought somebody in to do that. And um, we were, we were kind of leaving on a trip for a couple of days and we weren't gone very long when this dude, you know, was like telephoning us and sending us all these pictures. And it turned out that after he, he, he pulled out the lining of this tub, um, it wasn't just like the regular, you know, sort of like white plastic formica-y, you know, tub lining, bathtub lining, but underneath it was an 800 pound cast iron tub. That, that they had covered this thing with, with just your normal, you know, plastic, I don't know all the verbiage, right? You guys know where I'm going with that. So they literally, they, the dude literally was saying, I've never seen anything like this, except this tub is like, looks like it's like 900 years old. And the only way to get it down was the guy had to bring in a crane and like bring it through the window and then down, you know, you know, take it down into the front lawn and then haul it away. He had surfaced the hidden things in our house, right? Oh man, that was a fun call to get, let me tell you. It's important to understand here that Jesus is not, he's not tricking this woman as his conversation with her gets incredibly personal. He is being, he's being kind. He's being gentle. He's being lowly with her as he seeks to save her. This is a woman who is lost and by the way, let me, make this, let me make this really critical distinction here. She's not lost because she's had five husbands or is currently living with the one that isn't her husband. Those are just symptoms of her lostness. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And that's a big distinction for us to remember and to make. Jesus exposes the hidden things in this woman's life but then the conversation takes a bit of a strange turn into the, the, the worship and the, the practices of the Jewish people. And it reminds me of how good we are sometimes at avoiding the, the deeper and the painful things that lie hidden in our heart. And yet, ironically, what's so amazing about this story is that this woman was actually getting to the heart of where Jesus was going. So the direction that this woman is taking the conversation, it doesn't sort of throw Jesus off. Jesus just takes what she says and he pulls her in closer. And now it's important to understand that women had almost no agency back in this culture, okay? When we read that this woman had five husbands and was living with a man who wasn't her husband, you know, we can, that, that, fair, that Pharisee rises up in us and go, yeah, Jesus, call that out in her. Right? We get a little self-righteous. But it's probably help for, helpful for us to imagine that this was a, a person, because she was a woman in this culture, who had not been cared for. She had not been cared for. This is a woman who had been mistreated this is a woman who had likely been abused. Uh, this is a woman who did not have someone who had loved and honored her and cherished her and taken care of her. This is the woman that Jesus saw. And by the way, that's the person that Jesus sees when he surfaces the hidden things in your life, whether you're a man or a woman. This is the person that Jesus sees, the person that comes to the table with all the veiled pain. And what does he do? 
he moves in closer. He comes in deeper. He wasn't coming in to condemn her like our tendency would be to do. He was coming in to care for her, which is what Jesus's tendency is always to do. Jesus was saying, hey, your status as a Samaritan, as a woman, as an adulteress, doesn't mean you don't have access to God. Jesus surfaces the hidden things in this woman's life to show her that forgiveness is for her because he is for her. What a countercultural move by Jesus in this moment. He says in verse 23, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. In other words, this is what he's saying when he says that. It's not just about being a Jewish person at a Jewish synagogue that gives you access to God, but it's a transformed life. It's a transformed soul. It's a transformed heart. It's not just about your heritage. It's about your heart. And you can almost hear the, the pleading and even the, maybe the hopeful tone in her words as she acknowledges the coming of the Messiah. She, she says, when he comes, he will tell us all things. It's like she's saying, I hear you. And when the Messiah comes, he will finally get to the truth, he will finally make sense of all of our lives. And then Jesus provides just this incredibly gentle but profound mic drop, right? He says, I who speak to you am he. In other words, the waiting is over. All of your tragic history, all of your deepest longings, wait no more. I am him, God in the flesh, the I am. And then strangely, we, we don't get much of a response yet. Something in verse 28 clues us in because after his disciples arrive, she leaves her water jar, goes back to town and tells her friends, hey, come on out, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ, she asks. This woman was given a taste in that moment of the living water that Jesus was offering. He had surfaced hidden things that nobody could have possibly known. And it reminds me of how afraid we are of what might surface in our lives because it can be so painful but it's the way that Jesus, like a, like a surgeon, gets in and, and cuts out what's hurting so that healing can begin to happen. And then what we see is that the people hear the woman's testimony. They rush out of town to see who this person is. And, and by the way, we might imagine that, that this group of people are not the elite people of society either. These may have been people similar to this woman people with great needs, who saw their great needs and, and come with eagerness to see who might be able to meet those great needs. And then in the meantime, we get this sort of this, this sharp turn in the narrative, in the story, where Jesus then refocuses his, dis, 
his disciples for mission in verses 27 through 38. The disciples come in and first off, they're, they're at a loss for words. I mean, they're walking in and, and what they're seeing against pushes against everything that they know should be happening. What's he doing? Why is he talking to this woman? She's a Samaritan. Like, what is going on here? And yet, it causes them to go silent. They don't ask. They're not expecting to see what they see, but they don't want to know what it is that they're seeing. It's offensive to them. It's, it's countercultural. It's not the way things are done. So just like the woman, they try to change the subject. And I love this exchange. It's, it's kind of, it's humorous, really. There's some rare and subtle humor in scripture sometimes. You don't always see it. The disciples are like, uh, have you eaten Jesus? <laughs> right? You know? And Jesus is like, look, I have food that you don't know about. And they're like, uh, good grief. Will somebody get this guy a sandwich? You know, it's like they're saying like, look, we don't want to deal with what you're dealing with here. We want to go back to transient things. Like you're thirsty, you're hungry. We bought some food. Let's get some food in this guy because none of this is making any sense Jesus, on the other hand, is like, boys, I'm fine. I got the food that I need. He refocuses his disciples for mission. He's showing them that for God so loved the world means that it's not just the Jewish people who are going to be saved and benefit from the gospel. Don't miss the focus of our mission, Jesus is saying. It's to seek and save the lost. Don't let prejudice prevent you from being a part of this incredibly countercultural work that's taking place with this woman and right now in your own hearts. The Lord has been preparing hearts for this time. Don't miss it, Jesus is saying. These fields are white for harvest, he's saying. Don't miss what's going on here. This is the stuff. This is why I came. You're seeing the message of the gospel in action. But we miss things too, don't we? I mean, we miss things too. Our minds get dull to the fields that are white and ripe for harvest around us. We forget, we forget the power that lies in the gospel, which by the way is a power that lies in us because, and here's our final point, because Jesus changes the world by his word. The world is changed by the words of Jesus Christ. This woman's testimony was so powerful that it intrigued people enough to go, all right, we want to come and see this guy. Now remember, all she had was her experience to share. This man who told me everything that nobody else could possibly know. He told me everything about, you know, she didn't have a she didn't have a pocket version of the Gospel of John and say, hey, we're going to start an eight-week Bible study and I can teach you everything there is to know about this guy. They trusted her word, but when they heard the words of Jesus himself, their hearts were changed. And it says Jesus stayed with them for a couple of days, preaching the Gospel, ministering in all kinds of ways that invited the Samaritans to believe the good news of the Gospel. We learn so much from this exchange between Jesus and the woman and his disciples. We learn that when we quench our thirst with the living water that Jesus provides through himself, we will live counterculturally like Jesus. Something will continue to be changed and reformed and reshaped in our hearts as we drink the truth 
of Jesus's word and let it wash over us, let it infiltrate us, let it get into us, let it be the thing that satisfies us. When we let that water, when we let the the truth and the beauty of Jesus invade our hearts, we draw near to those who are unlovely. We desire our thinking to be revolutionized. We pray that Jesus continues to surface the hidden things. We pursue mission with renewed love and energy. We do this with the confidence that the word of Jesus changes everything out there, but inside of here first. We will remember the kindness of Jesus when we are drinking from the well of his word, which provides us the nutrients of his love and his acceptance and his mercy and his grace. The tenderness he showed this woman is the tenderness that he is showing you right now, today, in this warehouse. He knows all that you are and all that you have ever done. But he did not enter your life to condemn you. Your sin condemns you. My sin condemns me. Jesus enters to offer us something that will satisfy us. He comes to offer us the better water because he is the better water. Whoever is thirsty, go to the well that I have built. No. Whoever is thirsty, come to me. Drink me. So we end today by asking this question, what will we do with the living water that Jesus offers us? What is the well that you continue to drink from that is not satisfying you, that is causing you to just increase your appetite for those things that increase your walk to those wells day after day and you draw and you draw and you drink and you drink and you're left like this woman without the water that is going to satisfy. What are those things? What are those waters in your life that you can locate and you can go before the Lord today as we take communion here in a minute. You can say, Lord, I, I see what I keep drinking and it's not satisfying me. Do a countercultural work in my life, Lord. Remove those barriers. Remove those social norms that can even seem good and religious-like, but they're actually building barriers and walls between me and you because I'm looking for those things to give me something that they can't provide. They're collapsing on me. They're a ceiling. The living water of Jesus is available to us. And when we take communion, we're going to be acting that out as his people. I'm going to pray. Jeff's going to come up and going to lead us through communion. He's going to talk a little bit about what it means to drink this water if you never have, if you've never tasted it. So let me pray and then Jeff will come up. Lord, we thank you for the story. We thank you for the tenderness that we see from Jesus to this woman. We thank you for the the countercultural work that Jesus does 
in our hearts that is so similar to what we see from his exchange with this woman at the well. Lord, we pray that you would, Lord, as you've offered us the better water, that we would drink from it today, that we would not continue to be fooled by drinking from a well that is ultimately something that can't satisfy our longings. Lord, would you surface those things in our lives? Would you teach us this morning? Would you convict us this morning? Would you help us to draw near to you as you are drawing near to us like you did at that woman, with the woman at the well? Would you remind us of your compassion and your closeness that as we pull away, as we argue with you, you just keep drawing in nearer still. Let that comfort, Lord, let that comfort be a, just a bright light of hope and grace for us this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.